So anyway, Jesus has left that place and he's in this region of Tyre and Sidon. And if you guys know anything about the Bible, you know that Tyre and Sidon are not like nice, beautiful places that you know, people go to have high spiritual experiences. In fact, uh, some of the most wicked people in the Old Testament come from Sidon. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Ahab and Jezebel, but Ahab was a king of Israel and he married a Sidonian, so a princess from Sidon. And she brought one of the most notorious idols in the Old Testament, this, this idol that was constantly being put up against God and saying, hey, this is your God. And God was constantly bringing prophets to say, that's not your God, I'm your God. And that idol was Baal. That, that Baal idol came from, from Tyre and Sidon. Jesus goes to this place that, you know, traditionally is not like a, a good place. God constantly is sending prophets that actually condemn Tyre and Sidon as a place of wickedness, as a place where God's judgment will rest and fall. And so Jesus uh, leaves us Pharisees, and he comes to this unexpected place. And Matthew's really smart here. He's kind of setting this up. He's saying something weird is going to happen here, something unexpected, something out of the ordinary. So listen to this, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So again, if you guys are familiar with your Bibles, who were the Canaanites? Does anyone know who the Canaanites were? You can shout it out. We have a little audience participation this morning. Yes. Thank you, Kirk. Yes. So Israelites uh, displaced the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a people group that were so wicked, the Bible tells us. I mean, they gave a list of things, but uh, for, primarily one of the, the things that gets raised up is that they would sacrifice their own kids to their, to their gods. It was a people group that was so wicked that God said, hey, you know what? I can't tolerate this anymore. I got to do something about it. And, and he says, I'm going to drive you out and give this land to the people of Israel. And so right away, again, Matthew's setting us up. So we have this person who's the descendant from the traditional wicked enemies of Israel. And she comes to Jesus and her daughter's demon-possessed. Like this is all kind of at odds. If you're a Jewish reader reading this, you're thinking, okay, this bad news bears right here. So it says in verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. Okay. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is going to the wilderness, little TLC. His cousin John the Baptist has just been executed. He needs time to process. He goes there and there's this crowd. And it doesn't say Jesus ignored the crowd and stayed silent. It says that he had compassion on them. But what's his response to this woman? It says he did not answer a word. Okay, this is getting a little bit weird for us. So even his disciples think something's off. They come to him and they say, uh, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Like, Jesus, this is getting annoying. This woman keeps yelling at us. We're just trying to walk around here. And, and, and really we know that they're saying, Jesus, can you just heal her and be done with this? Because look at how Jesus answers. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I mean, Jesus, you haven't discriminated against anyone up until this point. I mean, Matthew chapter 8, we saw Jesus heal a Roman centurion servant. So he's dealing with someone who's not a Jewish person. Even earlier in that chapter, he's in the non-Jewish part of the lake, and he heals two demon-possessed people. And now he's sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? And listen to how this continues. The woman came and knelt before him. 
Lord, help me, she said. This is how he replies. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I don't care what culture you're in, being called a dog seems like a bit of an insult to me. I mean, some of you are new, you're like, are these guys reading the racist Bible? Because this is sounding a little xenophobic to me. Jesus is like, nah, not, not about you guys. Well, listen to how it continues. The woman says to Jesus, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. There are so many things about this passage that, you know, as we're reading through, I hope you're, you're, you're starting to get a little bit uncomfortable. As I first read this, it, it made me uncomfortable because this just does not seem like the portrait of Jesus that we've seen so far. I mean, as we've mentioned, we've seen that he has already interacted with people who aren't Jews. I mean, he's had compassion instantaneously with people. Uh, and, and I'll be honest with you, I know how the book of Matthew ends. We talk about it a lot. Matthew 28, Jesus goes to his disciples and says, go to all nations. So what's going on in this moment? You know, as I was thinking about this, I realized, man, if, if any one of you, you know, if I met with any one of you, and, and let's say you were talking about, I don't know, what's a different culture, Mexicans. Don't, sorry, Edna, I'm not trying to pick on Mexicans. <laughs> but, but let's say, uh, you know, you were out and, uh, and you're having a conversation and this Mexican person comes up to you and says, like, hey, I really need to know about Jesus. And, and you're just like, hey, sorry, I'm only sent to Canadians. We're not going to have that conversation. And you told me about this? I'd be like, guys, that's a deep sin issue in your life. Like, there is a huge problem there. Well, the Bible tells us Jesus was without sin I mean, throughout it. Here's just one example, Hebrews 4.15. Author of Hebrews Claiming for Jesus, he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. But when I read this, I'm starting to wonder. Jesus doesn't seem very kind, very gentle, very loving to this woman at all. So what is going on in this passage? Well, now we get to diagrams and stuff. So for all of you nerdy Bible people, this is like your jam. For everyone else, bear with us. So this is what's going on. Jesus says to his disciples, I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What does that mean? You guys see at the, at the top of the screen, go back one slide just for a sec. Uh, you see at the top of the screen, we have these titles. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, uh, but it says creation, fall, redemption, revelation, restoration. Uh, the reason that we do this is because we actually believe that the Bible is a unified story and there's four main acts, if you will. We just kind of throw revelation in there to say, hey, this is when we're having the sermon. But every single story in the music and the, the readings that we have. And so we believe that as the Bible teaches in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created a good world, that he, build, uh, he built humans into it to be rulers over it in his place, to be his vice regents or his stewards uh, of the creation but instead of doing that, humans rebelled, and that's what we call the fall. That's why when we have this moment of confession, we, read, we sing songs like, uh, forgive us. 
Uh, forgiven, forgive, you know, that one. Uh, there's a reason for that because we actually believe that we have rebelled against God. But we believe that God didn't just leave us in this place where he said, okay, I'm leaving you to your own devices or, or simply just destroy us, that God actually had a plan to redeem us. And so what we have at work in the Bible and in the vast majority of the Bible is the working out of God's plan for redemption. All right, let's, let's get to, to the good diagram here. I'm gonna look up here, so don't worry, I'm, I'm still engaging, but I, I can see it here. You guys look behind me. So this is sort of just a way to help us see how God's plan gets realized within the scripture. So what we see is that God, God makes humans, humans choose to rebel, become many nations of people. And out of those many nations, God chooses one family uh, from a man named Abraham. And he builds a single nation that he says, I am going to bind myself to you so that I can work through you to bring about this redemption. And as that journey goes, this people does not do what God says. They continue to fail to live up to the covenant that God has made with them. And God chooses one particular king out of their kings, a guy named David. And he says, okay, David, I'm even going to like tighten this up. So not only am I going to use Israel, but I'm actually going to bind myself to your family. I'm going to promise that I will raise up someone from your family And if you go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is exactly the claim that Matthew is making about Jesus. He's saying the promises that God has made to this family are being realized in Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So going back to the the diagram there, you'll see we have Jesus. But but God has said that, number one, not only is he going to restore Israel, but he's going to use a restored Israel to restore all nations. And so Jesus comes, and what he's saying here is, this is he's saying this is the part of the story that we're in. Saying God has bound himself to the people of Israel. He has promised that he will come and change them. In fact, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, this is the constant claim. What the Apostle Paul says is he says, Israel has continued. He said some branches got cut out. But Gentiles have now been grafted in like a a branch of a tree being grafted in. That's meaning if you guys are are here, I think most of us are, and you weren't born Jews, you're a tree branch that has been grafted in to the people of Israel. So this has massive implications for us. So so Jesus initially saying, he's he's saying, it's it's not actually my time to, to reach the Gentiles. My purpose right now is to reach the people of Israel. And there's a couple of things I think that we we need to take from this about the character of Jesus. And the first one is that what we're seeing here is the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises, to fulfill his covenant. And that is a really, really good thing. Because God has made similar promises to each and every one of us. When we look at the way that God has chosen to redeem humanity, it's a process. It's a process of his continual pursuit. In church, isn't it good to know that there's a God who's going to pursue you? Abe stands up and he tells you the story of his life. Isn't it good that there's a God who pursued him, who continues to pursue him, who continues to be faithful to him? That is good news indeed. A second thing I think is really important to realize, though, is that we can't just look at Jesus' words in this passage we have to let the context of his actions actually dictate for us how we understand his words. And, and what we see at the end is the posture of Jesus. 
Jesus says to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. We know that there is this time coming when Jesus is going to send out his disciples to all nations. When he's going to say, hey, go therefore into all nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. And this is, this is exactly where he's going. And in essence, what he's saying in this moment, he's saying this is a foreshadow, this is a foretaste of what I hope for all people. And so I'm going to reenact it right here in this woman. And if that's the case, if, if we know that God's desire, that the mission of God is to bring about the restoration of all things, then we need to actually take a hard look and ask ourselves, where do we fit in this story? As I said earlier, if, if God's bound himself to work through the people of Israel, and he's grafted us in, that has huge implications for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Going back to that diagram one more time. Sorry for all you people who are like, I'm done with the diagram. Israel, right? On the, on the other side there, we see Israel again. What is it? It's the church. And what was Israel's job? Well, God told Abraham, the one who was the father of, of Israel, I'm going to use you and your family to bless the nations, to bless all people. So here, here's a question for you. If you are here and you're saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, are you a blessing to all people? If God's plan for bringing about restoration is to use his church, are we active in this mission? If this is the case, then Matthew 28 1920, the Great Commission is not just something that he had for his earliest followers. It's something that he has for us, and it has massive implications. It means that our call as Christians is to make disciples, that make disciples. And I just I have a little bit of a, a word of, of caution for us, because I think there are times, especially for parents, where we can kind of say, yeah, I am making a disciple of my kids. And, and don't get me wrong, that is super important. Jesus recognizes that his first calling is to the people of Israel. But when someone comes to him who's not there yet, he doesn't say, well, you have to wait. So he, do, he responds to her faith and brings about that restoration now. And there are times when we as parents can be so concentrated in saying, this is, this is my responsibility now that we actually ignore the people around us and you know we have neighbors we have co-workers we have fellow students and we think yeah you know what not quite yet and yet the word of caution here is to say if we are called to be people who are disciples that make disciples and God brings people into our life then we actually have a responsibility to act upon it all right that was kind of our 20,000-foot view. Now we're going to jump in here to a little bit more of a zoom in. So there's something really interesting. As Matthew constructs his book, 
uh, he's taking various pictures, uh, various uh, events in Jesus' life, and, and he's very intentional about how he puts them together. And so it's no accident that right beside this story, the week that we had before, is a story of the Pharisees. So Matthew wants to, to give us as his readers a contrast here. For the readers of Matthew who are Jewish people, and for those of us who have grown up in the church, you're looking at the Pharisees, and if you know anything about Pharisees, you know they're rigorous at following their Bible. They're rigorous at living it out. They got all the spiritual disciplines down. And so they're the people that you would expect to be the kind of disciples that God is going to work with to bring about his picture of restoration. And yet at the end of our passage today, Jesus says, Woman, you have great faith. Matthew wants us to see that this is a better, more clear picture of what discipleship looks like than the Pharisees. Let's just think it through for a second. If you were here last week, these are things that you might have picked up. But the Pharisees, they belong to the covenant people. So they have access to the scriptures. They have access to all of God's promises. And yet, they take offense at Jesus and the conduct of his disciples. Not only that, they have all these promises that point forward to Jesus. And yet when Jesus, God himself in human form, is standing right in front of them, they ignore his authority. And ultimately, their, their, uh, their understanding of Scripture is so defective that when Jesus talks about them later, he says that they are plants that his father did not plant and they will be uprooted and cast away. And then we look at this Canaanite woman. She's a, a pagan, a descendant of Israel's traditional enemies. Her daughter's got a demon for crying out loud. Like this is a a woman who, by any stretch of the imagination, you would think, man, this is a, a toss-out case. Like, I don't think Jesus is going to work through her. She does not have the benefit of the covenants that God has made with the people of Israel. She's not an Israelite. She hasn't had generations of people studying the scriptures to teach her. And yet she seems to understand something that the Pharisees never did. When she comes to Jesus, she calls him son of David, Israel's promised Messiah, Lord. She throws herself at his mercy and says, have mercy, help me. She doesn't come to Jesus and say, I have a claim to you. I've earned this. I deserve this. She just says, I need this. I need you. And Matthew celebrates her. Jesus celebrates her. Says, you have great faith. Here's a picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. And this is important because the way that God chooses to accomplish his mission, the way that that big picture of blessing the nations is going to take place is as God changes individual lives and Matthew wants us to understand that in order for us to be transformed, we come to Jesus like this. I didn't deserve you. I haven't earned anything. I have nothing. But I need you. 
just the crumbs, Jesus. Just the crumbs from the table. This is so beautiful. You know, we often talk about great faith, and I think we have this, this way that we can misconstrue what faith is. So we think about faith as in like, man, this woman just had incredible belief, but faith isn't really based on the person. It's based on the object the faith is put in. There's a, a, a really easy analogy. Uh, if I go and step on thin ice, it doesn't matter how great my faith is, uh, it will hold me up. It won't. It will collapse. But if I step on thick ice, if it is thick enough, it doesn't matter how much I believe it won't hold me up, it will. In this moment, the woman's faith is great, not because she is great, but because she has placed it in the one who is great. The one who can actually fulfill the needs and desires that she brings to him. And we see this time and time again in the scriptures. Jesus, just the crumbs, just the crumbs are enough for me. The woman who just grabs hold of Jesus' cloak because she believes that that will be enough. I want to just quickly walk through this dialogue again that she has with him. It says that in verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And Jesus replies, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, I know this part seems super odd, super offensive, but what Jesus is actually doing here is, is he's, he's giving an analogy. Uh, he's giving a parable, if you will. And it's a parable that I think anyone who has a pet might actually understand. So uh, I have a dog. I think we might have a picture of her. Yeah, this is my, my little fur, fur baby. <laughs> this is my dog, Daisy. She's a Labradoodle. She's super cute. Uh, love her a lot. She's part of our, our family. Uh, some of you are like, that's stupid, but I don't know. She's, she's, our, she's our little, little fur baby. Uh, and then I also have a daughter. I'll just put a picture of her up. Yeah. Yeah, this little monster who woke up at 4.30 in the morning and screamed her brains out for an hour. This is my beautiful little girl. Now, if we ever get into really tight financial situation, here's the reality. My daughter, I'm not going to be thinking about my dog's food. I'm going to be thinking about hers. See, my daughter takes priority in our family. But here's the thing. Even though we think about feeding our daughter more than we think about feeding our dog, our daughter does not eat all of her food. And some of it, you know, we just give to our dog after. In fact, yesterday, we had to spend a lot of time cleaning up because my daughter just starts throwing food at our dog. What Jesus is saying here, this isn't a story about value. It's a story about order. So he's saying there is a specific order of things. The kids go before the pets. But listen to the woman's reply. Like this is this is where you get like that great faith coming out. She says, "Yes, it." She it looks like she's arguing with Jesus. She says, "Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table." Literally, if, if we look at the, the Greek, it's not really an argument. She, she actually agrees with Jesus. She's saying, what you're saying is right, Jesus, but you know what? Let's take your analogy to its furthest step. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the kid's table. Saying, Jesus, all I need is the crumbs. I don't need the whole shebang. Just give me a piece. Give me a, a piece of that. 
ultimately, what's going on is she knows the heart of God. She knows that where God is going is this point of restoration of all things. She knows that this isn't just going to stay with the people of Israel, but that God's going to use the people of Israel to bring about restoration to all nations. And she says, Jesus, can I have a little piece of that now? And it's this beautiful thing where she, she looks forward and she says, I see the picture of where you're going. Can I just get the crumbs of that now? And church, this has massive discipleship implications for us because we also know the end of the story. We have the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I just want to read for you Revelation chapter 21, a couple of verses from it, just to, to stir our hearts to remind us of where the story goes. John, one of Jesus' earliest followers, has this vision. He writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he continues on in verse 22 to 24. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb lamb is its lamp. And listen to this. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. Isn't that a beautiful picture? No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more suffering. We uh, read the Jesus Storybook Bible sometimes to our daughter, and I think at the end it says something like, God will make everything bad come untrue. When you hear that picture, does your heart not stir? and Say, man, Jesus, just the crumbs of that now, just a piece when you think about the people in your life who don't yet know Jesus, when you think about your neighbors, when you think about your coworkers, when you think about the people that are all around you, we look at the way that our world is fractured and broken, relationships in turmoil, a world at war, sickness, disease. Does your heart not look at this picture and cry out, Jesus, even just the crumbs right now, Have mercy on us, son of David. And I submit to you, if you can hear this and your heart does not long for it, you might not be a disciple, you might be a Pharisee. More concerned with your own kingdom and your own work than the heart of God. church this is why this is why we as a church have said what do what do we have to do I mean, we know that this picture of a restored kingdom of god where god dwells with people where there is no more sin no more sickness no more sorrow that we can't do that on our own this is why we gather together to pray what are we doing at taste and see we're simply coming and saying lord have mercy on us just the crumbs now for the city of Victoria. Just the crumbs now for our community groups. Just the crumbs now for our church. Just the crumbs now for our kids and for our families and for ourselves. 
little taste, Jesus, of the goodness that you are working towards. As I've had the opportunity to sit down with many community group leaders over the past couple of months, I've recognized that we aren't very good at this. I fully admit, this is something that I became deeply convicted of as I was walking through this sermon, that so often I'm not like the Canaanite woman. I'm like the Pharisees where I have this whole idea of how I'm going to do things in my own work by my own strength instead of falling at the feet of Jesus and saying, Lord, have mercy. As we finish off here, I just want to point us to something that I think is pretty incredibly profound. God didn't need Israel. He didn't need you. He doesn't need me. He had for some particular reason, he has chosen voluntarily to bind himself to humanity. He bound himself to Abraham and Abraham's family. He bound himself to Moses and the people of Israel. He bound himself to David. He binds himself to working through his church. And ultimately, he bound himself to humanity by becoming one of us, and he bound himself to the cross, taking the punishment for our rebellion upon himself. The God who could do everything voluntarily bound himself to his people. Is that not beautiful? And so our calling is to allow God through his spirit to work through us to accomplish his mission. To like the woman, come before him, humbly recognizing we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, but that he's good, and so we can ask for it. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, even just the crumbs now be enough. I'm going to invite the band to come up. As they do, I just want to remind us of how we're going to get to respond. We're going to get to respond through song. We're going to get to worship Jesus. And there's this this image that happens in this story. When the woman first comes to Jesus, it says that she knelt before him. There's an act of worship in that moment where she recognizes, Jesus, you are enough. And we're going to get a chance to proclaim that through our songs today, that Jesus is truly enough. We're also going to get to respond through giving. We're going to get to recognize that we don't get to bring about restoration by our means. And so often, this is how we think that we're going to get to bring that point of restoration around through our money. And yet, she says, that's not going to do it. And so we discipline our hearts every week by saying, You're right, Jesus, this isn't going to do it. Let me give it to you because we trust that you are. We're going to get to respond through communion. As you take the cracker, be reminded of the God who bound himself to flesh so that you and I could be transformed. Dip it into the wine or grape juice. His blood was shed on our behalf. And finally, we're going to get to respond through prayer. And this is really just an invitation, an invitation to go together with someone else and say, Jesus, Lord, Son of David, 
have mercy on me. Let me pray for us. Father, as we take a look at your word, it's so clear that you desire to restore all things, that you are calling us together as your people for your purposes. But Father, your desire is to first work in us, to transform us, and so you call us to come to you humbly, recognizing that we bring nothing to the table. As we come before your, your table, Father, we're reminded that you did everything. And yet, you still invite us into the process with you. So I pray, Father, for our church family, that you continue to humble us, and that you continue to use us, and that we would get to see even just the crumbs, the crumbs of your kingdom here in the city of Victoria. We get to see the crumbs in the marriages of Victoria, in the relationships, in our politics, in our poverty. Just the crumbs, Lord. Amen.